Live from Los Angeles, this is Rabbi Ere Sherman and Rabbi on the Sidelines. This morning, we are going to delve into the academic world of sports and see how the impact of sports has had on the Jewish community and how the Jewish community has impacted the landscape of the American sports community over the years. We are joined by Libby Clapperman, Professor of Jewish History of Yeshiva University, Dr. Jeffrey Gorak from New York. Dr. Gorak, it's so good to see you and to reconnect. How are you? Thank you very much. I, I long remember my visit to Syracuse, New York, and your dad and meeting Dolph Shays and speaking about Jews and sports a while back. And it's really wonderful to uh, talk about my work and to dialogue with you about Judaism and sports. So you wrote a book, many books, but one of them specifically on the idea of Judaism's encounter with American sports. That's and correct. You, I saw a, a clip of your interview a couple of years ago, I believe it was in Connecticut, and you said that it took 25 years to write this book, not because you didn't have the ideas, but because it was not going to be taken seriously, both in the Jewish world and in the sports world. How were you able to finally break that barrier and say, this is an important book for the sports world and the Jewish community? Well, in the world of academe, uh, American Jewish history is the youngest discipline, along with our sister discipline, American Jewish sociology. And to be totally candid with you, many of my colleagues in the field of Jewish studies are dismissive of the study of American Jewish history. After all, we don't study the Talmud, we don't study ancient Jewish history, we don't study Rashi, Tospis, and the like. But, you know, for me as a historian of of American Jewry and of immigration, the issue of how Jews live their lives in a social way, how they eat, how they dress, and how they recreate is one of the important ways of understanding of how they became Americans. So when I started out, you know, in the 1970s to write a book about, not about Jews and sports, but how something which is a foreign cultural phenomenon, namely sports, enters into the lives of Jews and all the conflicts and ramifications was something that I don't think my uh, professors and my colleagues would take seriously. But after earning my bona fides with other works, I decided mm -hmm. that, you know, part of me, I was a jock back then and I was a coach. I want to write a very different type of sports book. My book and my work is not about great Jewish heroes in sports. You know, mm -hmm. there's that, that. That's the book that, behind me, right? The Jewish right, sports legends. Yeah, that's is that infamous uh, uh, scene in Airplane where they talk about, you know, a very small book named Jewish sports heroes. I, I don't get involved in that, although I know that in the 20th century, Jews were involved in a variety of sporting activities and were leaders, uh, three great uh, Reds in basketball, Red Albach, Red Holtzman. And Red Sarachek. If, if I can mention Yeshiva, Red Sarachek were instrumental in the growth of the game. And, and at one point, uh, basketball was seen as the Jewish game. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, in the 1930s, by the way, there was a sports editor for the Daily News in New York named Paul Gallico, and he wrote a column. He said, why are Jews so great in basketball? Because they're sneaky, they're conniving, they mm -hmm. know how to play this game, and it reflects on their personality, their history, their heritage, and the like. Anyway, 
So I decided to write a book called Judaism's Encounter with American Sports, which is not really a sports book. Mm -hmm. It is a book about American Judaism using the metaphor of sports. You know, uh, one last thought about this. I have colleagues who have written wonderful books about how Jews eat as immigrants, mm -hmm. how they adopt American culinary uh, styles. There are people who work on how Jews dress and how they become American. And so I was interested in telling the sports story, uh, the immigration story, multi-generational story through the metaphor of sports. And uh, since that book came out almost 20 years ago, yeah. I've written all sorts of additional articles about this whole encounter of Judaism and sports, where we fit into America. Again, it's a metaphor. It's not a, uh, it's not a sports book. So do you think at first the identity of Jews was not necessarily on the front page, meaning the athletes were not advertising their Jewishness as opposed to now by the, the, the famous joke, right? On Yom Kippur, the congregant comes to the rabbi and says, there's the Dodger game and there's Yom Kippur. And the rabbi says, tape it. He says, great, I'll tape the service. By the way, today you can tape the service and go to the game. Right. right. <laughs> we have that, uh, that, that equal opportunity. Has that changed in terms of how athletes, coaches, managers, owners identify themselves as Jews in the sports world? And how is that brought back to the Jewish community? Well, look, um, there were two sports that were very popular among immigrant Jews, basketball and boxing. Boxing, yeah. Okay. Much less baseball because Jews lived in, although obviously you have Hank Greenberg later on in the 1930s and 1940s, but uh, you have a situation if you're living on the Lower East Side or Maxwell Street in Chicago, etc., there isn't much open space. Mm -hmm. But basketball and the settlement houses become very, very important, and Jews are very proud of their basketball teams. Boxers, on the other hand, is an interesting thing. There's a lot of Jewish name changing here uh, in the Jewish community because boxing is a, is a violent sport. And uh, a lot of the great Jewish boxers, uh, like Benny, uh, Benny Leonard in the 1920s, uh, his, he was born Benny Liner, changes his name in order to uh, hide his Jewishness. And he's hiding his Jewishness, by the way, not from the general public, from his parents, hmm. who think this is not, this is not something that, uh, that Jews should do. And I was, I, I was just writing about this this morning on, on a different topic. And that, you know, it said on the one hand, they're very proud of these Jewish boxers because they're strong, they're resolute. And when they beat Christians, oh, this is a big deal, right? But eventually, in the Yiddish press, by the 1920s, the Forbits, which is socialist, the Morgenstern now, which is orthodox, the Varheit, which is also radical, they're running columns about Jewish boxes and Jewish and Jewish players. So it becomes something that becomes very important to Jews. And as far as the general media is concerned, yeah, there's there's a lot of interest when a Jewish player appears mm -hmm. on the scene. It's said that for the longest time, the New York Yankees, and I hate to be so New York referencing these things, was shooting for a Jewish ball player because they thought Jewish fans would turn out, and they did. And I think uh, Ron Bloomberg had the distinction of being the first uh, designated hitter yeah. in baseball. I guess he just I wrote a book this was, past year. Uh, I don't want to insult him, but he was a pretty lousy fielder, but uh, his, <laughs> he, he, could, he could hit. 
So, so here's that's part yeah. of the story. Here's a player that I just learned about doing this research for this interview, and it's Ozzie Sheckman. So we're going to watch a quick clip of who Ozzie Sheckman was and his distinction in the National Basketball Association. Great. It was a thrill being an original, Nick. You know, uh, like any good house, it's built on a strong foundation. And uh, we felt, at least I felt, that uh, I was a pathfinder. I was there at the beginning. Toronto was in the, was in the uh, league at that time. And due to a hockey game, we were scheduled to open on November 1st, which is the day before the rest of the league opened. And lo and behold, I scored the first two points. It was a great feeling, you know, you know open the league, score the first two points. I, I got a charge out of that. The first basket in the National Basketball Association, Ozzie Sheckman. Who is he and why does he matter? So Ozzy, Ozzy, I was in that movie, by the way, uh, as a talking head. It took so long to do the movie that I appear with a beard and without a beard. It's sort of interesting, <laughs> uh, et cetera. When the uh, Knicks had their first season, four of the five star, four of the five starters were Jews. Okay, and the purpose of this movie is to say that before it became an African American game, which of course it is pre predominantly now, it was a Jewish game, and Ozzy Sheckman, along with uh, Dutch Garfinkel, who also appears, uh, who appears in that clip, Dutch, Dutch uh, Garfinkel, um, contended that he invented the lookaway pass, and he said that he broke a lot of fingers with his lookaway pass. So. Uh, it's it's uh, it's uncovering or recovering the an early history of Jews in sport. Does it matter on the in the longest the the, the longest scheme of things? I'm not sure, but it just indicates how the game evolved from being a immigrant game with Jews uh, playing a, a great role, and now becomes an African American game. I want to tell you something else. Um, I keep doing research in this area. Did you ever hear of the St. John's Wonder Five? Who they were? Uh, probably before Karnaseka? Long before Karnaseka, long before no. Lapchik. Listen to this. Between 1928 and 1931, St. John's University, a Catholic yeah. university, their basketball team, they're called the Red Men, okay? Yeah. Although yep. there were no Native Americans on the team. Mm -hmm. Won 64 games and lost four. It's a St. John's story. It's also a Jewish story. Four of the five starters on the St. John's team were Jews. And I've just written an article, which will be published next year, of their, their experiences as Jews at St. John's. Mm. This was a period where there was a lot of tension between the Irish and the Jews in New York. And I was wondering, how would they receive within the St. John's community? And the answer is, among other things, is that St. John's wanted to win. And these were great plays. Rip Gerson, uh, Shuffman, I'm forgetting the other two. There was four Jews and one Gentile were involved in that team. And they, um, they were very, they were, they were within the Jewish community, very excited that they're playing for St. John's and that they're, play, they're playing so well. So I continue to work on that subject. It's before it's before Lapchik and before Conaseca. And by the way, I finished the article by looking at Lapchik's career and then at Conaseca's career. Conaseca, by the way, is a wonderful fellow. Mm -hmm. He's 96 years old. Wow. Still very bright. And I interviewed him about the last Jewish players who uh, 
played for St. John's goes into the 1960s. In other words, look at this one. There was a tradition of tolerance at St. John's. Mm -hmm. And the metaphor was that Jewish students went to that school when they were turned away from other schools. And a few of them were great basketball players and they were our boys in mm -hmm. St. John's. It's a really interesting story. Uh, and I'm very happy to have written it. And it's going to appear in the book on Irish-Jewish relations wow. in, New York, in New York City. And uh, so I was, a now you see, I'm a veteran in the world of Jewish academics. So <laughs> when I was asked to be part of this project, I said, you know, I'll, I'll do a sports piece. They mm -hmm. said, fine, because you're the sports guy. The sports guy in terms of academic Jewish uh, studies. So, so that's one of the things. It really, it's really a, a fascinating story. So over the past year, I've found both many Jews in sports, but also people who are not Jewish who have a faith story to tell in sports. And the simple premise I ask is, is there faith in sports? And it's interesting. I went through the whole ESPN college basketball crew over this past year. Just mm -hmm. had Jay Billis on, on Monday, but had uh, Seth Greenberg, Andy Katz, Dan Schulman, an amazing, amazing uh, story that he talks about he doesn't share his, those stories on on the air uh, when he's you know working with Coach K and, and everybody. But then you bring up a couple of interesting points of is sports Jewish? And you give two examples. One coming up in the parsha in a couple of weeks of Yaakov and Esav of being in uh, Ish Ohalim, a, a man of the tent versus a man of the field of Esav. And two, the others of Maccabees. That's his anti-sports story that we're going against Hellenism, against Greeks. So is the sports world Jewish? And then we're going to go to the yeshiva world and what's happening well, look, today. Look, sports is one of the challenges to Judaism, our faith, in the modern world. Mm -hmm. You know, in traditional Jewish community, going back into the, you know, the time before Jews came to America in the late 19th, early 20th century, Athletics was something that was not Jewish. Jews were not involved. Sports was never, never hallowed as something that's very Jewish. Now, as far as the Maccabees are concerned, the, the historical Maccabees mm -hmm. were anti-sports, and that's the Hanukkah, Hanukkah story. So why in the world is there a Maccabee game? Or the Yeshiva Maccabees. the Yeshiva University called yeah. its basketball team the Maccabees? We should call ourselves the anti-Maccabees because we're engaged in sports. And the answer has a lot to do with the beginnings of the Zionist movement, hmm. which your viewers and listeners should know about. In 1898, at the Second Zionist Congress, Dr. Max Nordau got up and said, we need to have muscular Judentums, strong Jews, to fight against the world in a variety of worlds, perhaps on the uh, sports venue, and perhaps ultimately militarily. We have to go get away from this idea of the callow Jew. So when we call ourselves the Maccabees, we're linking ourselves to the, the motto, one of the mottos of the Zionist movement. And the other thing about the Maccabee games or Mac Maccabee clubs that existed in Austria and Germany and Hungary and Romania before World War II, is that the Jews were Jews who wanted to play sports um, were denied the right to uh, participate in Gentiles. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be very Jewish 
in terms of our identity by playing playing against the world. However, however, once you buy into sports, it's a challenge in terms of maintaining your religious identity. Yeah. As I've often written, and things are beginning to change in this regard, and I'm sure we'll talk about that now, Judaism's clock and calendar does not correspond to the general clock and calendar. So if you want to be a great athlete, it's going to be a challenge as far as your as far as your faith is concerned. And that's one of the themes. So as far as the biblical reference, yes, in traditional Jewish, in traditional Jewish way of looking at things, Yaakov, now truth is he does have a wrestling match with an angel. I'll that's true. That. Okay. Yeah. He is the primordial yeshiva student. He's Yoshev Ohalim. He's the sideline sitter, as opposed to his brother Esau, Esau, who we say is Ish Hasadeh, the man of the fields. In contemporary Midrash, I would give you, he would be the, the star left fielder or right fielder who's on steroids. That's mm -hmm. how Jewish tradition treats. So it's a great challenge. How do you balance your interest in being Jewish with your interest in being in a foreign cultural phenomenon? Now, I, just, I said this yeah. at the outset. The same story can be talked, told about opera singers, theatrical people, and people who are engaged in secular activities. How do you balance that, that sort of dynamic uh, in, uh, in, the, in the American way? Yeah, so it's interesting that you say that because on a personal note, I'm sitting here at Sinai Temple. We have three gymnasiums. And when I got here in 2014, the gyms were empty, but I heard that all the kids were playing in the local basketball league. And I said, actually, your, your metaphor of the shul with the pool, or I, what I quote you, the gymnasium over sanctuary, we started a basketball camp at a high level with high coaches bringing in NBA trainers, NBA players. All of a sudden, they were flocking here, and the sanctuary aspect came in. We end our camp, not with an award ceremony, but a Shabbos dinner at our house. And it's a fascinating way. And now people, people choose us, not for the religious level originally but for the sports that then lead to actual uh spiritual and religious community okay um, just to correct you a, a bit yeah the show with a pool phenomenon is doesn't start with me it it is back to the most important and controversial and dynamic rabbi in the 20th yep. century Mordechai Kaplan, exactly. who establishes the Jewish Center, which is an Orthodox synagogue in the west side of uh, Manhattan. There's a uh, institutional synagogue in Harlem. I wrote a book about Harlem. And the idea is the idea is that those who come to play may state to pr pray. pray. Now, right. when I say play, and again, I'm broadening it beyond sports. Uh, a synagogue should have multiple portals. The mm -hmm. ultimate goal is to get folks into the sanctuary. But you can play the piano in the music room. You can play in theatrical group. You can play basketball. You can swim. You can go to the library, God forbid. And but the, the hope is that you will ultimately come and pray. So I'm very happy this is working for you at Sinai Temple. But I got to tell you something. When I did my work, uh -huh. I interviewed some older Jewish fellas who played basketball in the 1940s at the Brooklyn Jewish Center. 
And I asked them, you're a pretty good basketball players. Did you ever stay to pray? And they said, you know what? Uh, here's what we did for the Jewish people. We played against the YMCA. We played against the Catholic Youth Organization. Um, and we were pretty good. And when we won, we, had, we struck a, a blow for Judaism by being these Catholics or these Christians. That's not exactly what Mordechai Kaplan had in mind. Right. So getting people, what I'll call the crossover dribble, mm -hmm. Judaism, from play to pray is always a very difficult thing to do. And it's something that uh, historians should look at because Mordechai Kaplan has this idea. But he's also very frustrated about the fact that people don't always stay to pray. Absolutely. But, you know, uh, look, here's another thing that I guess it's not in the book, but it's worth mentioning. Um, in, I think it's 2005. What is the year where the Red Sox beat the Yankees? 2000, 2005, right? It was around that yeah, time, right? right? Yeah, 2004 was uh, Aaron Friggin Boone's home run. I was at the Yankee <laughs> Stadium when that happened. So the next, the next year, the Red Sox won the world championship. And my wife and I were in Charleston, South Carolina commemorating the 150th anniversary of that Orthodox synagogue. I'd written a book about that synagogue. And the rabbi got up and he made a sermon. He said, this is a wonderful, wonderful occasion for our Jewish people. And we thank God that he sustained us in life to this great moment that we've lived to see. And I thought he was going to say the 150th anniversary of our congregation. He said, we lived to see the Boston Red Sox defeat the New York Yankees. Mm -hmm. Having used the sports metaphor, then the next 20 minutes, he's able to give a Torah message. Yep. So here's where the crossover dribble can work. Although, to be totally candid with you, sometimes when a rabbi talks about sports mm -hmm. or the book of the month club or the most recent a movie or whatever, what have you, congregants will say, is that what the rabbi's supposed to do? Exactly. So yeah. I don't know if that's true in your career, but yeah. it's, it's certainly been the career of of rabbis. So this has, this has nothing to do with who wins and loses. It has to do with how we view ourselves as a community over yeah. the uh, over the long, uh, the long haul. So I want to talk about those guys in uh, the... Shul Brooklyn Jewish Center going to the Catholics and anti-Semitism in sports. I want to play a quick clip of uh, Marty Glickman and talk about his significance in the Jewish sports world. This is the trailer from his movie, Glickman. He was extraordinarily talented. The best of what he did. Back the pass goes name, but throws deep down the middle. Subsequent generations didn't know that Marty had been an athlete and a terrific one. For any of us, he had the, the great Marty Glickman. You can't say 36 Olympics without thinking of Adolf Hitler and what the U.S. did to Marty Glickman. The first jock turned broadcaster. So why can't we think about the 1936 Olympics without Adolf Hitler and Marty Glickman? What happened there? And if you can take us from 1936, I believe, to the, uh, to the Munich aspect, and then take us to 2012, when Bob Costas was the only one who acknowledged what happened. The Olympic story of anti-Semitism and the history of American sports. 
Well, this may surprise you, but even as we speak, my next book, I'm writing a biography of Marty Glickman. Oh, that's, wow. what, that's what I'm working on right now, okay? And hopefully it'll be done in a couple of years, looking at his, his experience as an American Jew with an emphasis on the 36 games, but a variety of other things. Before I tell you, talk about, well, in 1936, uh, let's, go, let's start at the beginning. Every time there's an Olympics, it's supposed to be amateurism at, at its highest point. But every country who gets the Olympics tries to promote its identity, its sense of the world. 1936, the Berlin Games. There's a great debate in America, by the way, over whether America should go to Berlin and participate in Hitler's Games. Mm -hmm. uh, Jeremiah T. Mahoney of City College fame fights against Avery Brundage. Remember that name, Avery Brundage, who's head yep. of the American Olympic Committee. And Marty Glickman, who's a great runner, he's also a terrific football player, by the way, played four sports in high school, went to Syracuse University. In any yes. event, he's supposed to be in the four by 100 meter relay race, a signature event in the Olympics. Now, it's been said there were no other Jewish athletes on the American Olympic team. That's not true. There were a handful of basketball players, but basketball was so unimportant that it was played on a field uh, not on the court, and in Lenny Riefenstahl's three-hour movie called Olympiad, they don't even mention basketball. That's how unimportant basketball was. Anyway, it's been said, and it's very complicated, that the idea of a Jew on the victory stand in Berlin would be a humiliation uh, to the Nazis uh, mm -hmm. and their sense of Aryan supremacy. Of course, Jesse Owens win, wins all his gold medals. So what's the difference? Well, Jesse Owens is projected as a, uh, a slave who's working for his white masters and he's winning for America, but he's not really uh, like a Jew winning the award. And I want everyone to know that after the Olympics are over and Sam Stoller and Marty Glickman are stopped from participating, the team comes back to New York and they have a victory parade, and he's and and uh, Glickman's there, as is Jesse Owens, and they have a celebratory uh, event at the Waldorf Astoria, and Jesse Owens is there. Mm -hmm. But to get to the main ballroom, he has to go up the service elevator. So wars and sports, I argue yes. in my book, define yes. community. That's 1936. So if you want to see where Jews are seen in the world in 1936, look at the Berlin Games. Now, fast forward to 1972. The Olympics returned to Germany, not to Berlin, but the Serene Games go to, go to Munich. And Avery Brundage is no longer head of the American Olympic Committee. He's the head of the International Olympic Committee. Exactly. And 11 Israeli athletes are murdered by Palestinian terrorists. And after one day of mourning... Uh, the games continue. And uh, Brundage gives this odious speech where he talks about how politics are invading the, sustain, the, uh, the Olympic movement and the games go on. So if you want to see how Israel is seen in the, in the mm -hmm. world, look at 1972. A year later, an organization, a world organization that's not exactly, not exactly favorably disposed towards Israel called the United Nations, 
<laughs> defines Israel, defines Zionism as Zionism equals racism. Mm -hmm. Wars and the games go on, and this gives you some sense of it. Now, we're approaching 50 years since yes. Munich, right? And in, in uh, a few years ago, a few Olympiads ago, when the games were in London, the Jewish community of London and the widows of these, of these people wanted some recognition of the fact that Jews were killed, Israelis were killed in 1972. And the International Olympic Committee would not permit that to happen. So a great Jew named Bob Costas, he's not <laughs> Jewish, by the way, who happens to be a disciple of Marty, uh, Marty Glickman. Marty yep. Glickman, okay. When the Israeli team marches into the Olympic Stadium, announces, here comes the Israeli team. Mm -hmm. Everybody remember Munich 1972. So I'm pleased to tell you that during the last Olympics, they did recognize the fact of the 1972 right. atrocity. So they've come, they've done a little bit better as far as recognizing the, the murdering of, uh, of Israeli athletes. Look, one other thing about the Olympics that should be noted, and that is you probably know and your viewers probably know that when Israeli athletes compete against athletes from Arab countries, uh, exactly. very often, uh, I know they a few it. Olympiads ago, one of the Iranian athletes, I believe it was, was paid $40,000 by his government for yeah. refusing to compete against uh, 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 the Israeli athletes. Mm -hmm. So the Olympics are quite a challenge as far as the international scene for Jews is concerned, and Glickman in 36. Oh, when Glickman comes back to America after this dinner, right, and he competes in Europe after he's turned away, uh, he wants to work out. He's going back to Syracuse University. He'll play on the football team. He'll play on the track team. And he wants to work out in New York City along with a Gentile colleague of his, at the New York Athletic Club. And Glickman walks in and they tell him, you can't, you can't work mm -hmm. out at the New York AC because you're not a member and no Jews are allowed to be members of the New York AC. In his memoir, and he wrote a number of memoirs, he says for him, that was almost as onerous as being turned away from the the uh, Olympics. Wow. So if you want to understand where American Jews are in terms of social anti-Semitism in the 1930s, um, look at the New York Athletic Club. And I have to tell you a personal story about that, okay? In my book, I reference my own father, Jack Gura, who wrestled for the 92nd Street Y mm -hmm. under an assumed name. He called himself Jack Austin. I never asked my dad why he called himself Jack Austin, except for the fact we know he didn't want his mother to know he was becoming a wrestler. Mm -hmm. Your viewers might know that today there's a guy out there who's a wrestler named Stone Cold Steve Austin. He's not a relative of mine. Okay, <laughs> We had in our home a purloined towel that my father stole from the New York Athletic Club. Wow. The Jewish boy wrestled against the New York Athletic Club. It was an heirloom. Sadly, my parents are long gone, and we, 
we lost we lost the towel but the memory the memory remains mm -hmm. and it says a lot about where jews are in the uh in the mind of america in 1936 and where israel is in 1972 and it continues to this very very day and so we're gonna... talk for a second about scores and who won who lost but who plays the games yeah. is very, very important. So I want to go to the Israel-U.S. relationship through the sport of basketball. Okay. Uh, we're actually about to premiere the um, Los Angeles uh, premiere of the movie Alsi, Alsi Perry, uh -huh. 1977 Maccabi Tel Aviv with Danny Menken, the producer, who I had on the show a couple of weeks ago. Wonderful. And here was Alsi Perry, who was from the Newark ghetto, who says, I grew up in the Jim Crow era. I'm not accepted as a human being, like Jesse Owens here in my country, but I'm accepted in the land of Israel. He gets in some trouble when he comes back to America. He goes back to Israel, becomes Elisha and Avraham, and here I find my home. What's that power of basketball now from, you know, players going over there, Amari Stoudemire? Um, it's basically second to the NBA. If you're going to go to Europe, you go to Israel and you play Maccabi Tel Aviv. What about that phenomena and how actually Zionism or Israel has become a, an Orla Goyim to people who only thought it was a war-torn country? Right, right. Well, I, I guess before we mention them, we should mention Tal Brody. Yes, who, of course. Who come, who's an all American, a white Jewish All-American, plays for exactly. one of the Big Ten schools. And he's the captain of the team when Israel wins the European Cup. And his tagline is, we're here. We're on the map, and we're not leaving the map. Such a powerful statement about the importance, how Israel views itself. We are here in the world. A lot of people don't like us. The Russians didn't want to play in Israel. Exactly. Uh, they had a game, I think they had a game in, in the Holland. The Netherlands, yeah. The Netherlands, a neutral court. They beat the Russians, and what does he say? We're on the map. We've made it. So it's a great statement as far as, as – far as, uh, uh, Judaism, Judaism is concerned, uh, and, and Israel is concerned that he has this pride that expresses itself in this uh, particular ball game. So take that to Yeshiva University now, because you know I call it the Tamir Goodman effect. He's my age, same high school year. I went to a secular private school. He was not playing on Shabbos, obviously, with Bethphil in Baltimore. I remember showing my coach, "Look, this guy can do it. We can do it here too, and make accommodations." Um, He's become a household name with the Jewish Jordan. And then Yeshiva University, who was often on the doormat of whatever league they were playing in, all of a sudden, Jews who could go now to St. John's and other universities are choosing to play the Jewish University. And the story of Mike Sweetney, the Georgetown Hoya former Nick, who all of a sudden is embraced by the Jewish community and becomes assistant coach who actually stood on this bima for the first time in a synagogue a couple of summers ago. What is going on in the basketball world in America where Jews are going to play with the keeper on their head at a high level? And just like Tal Brody said, we are on the map here now. Well, I have a somewhat different vision of this whole story. Okay. <laughs> uh, Tamir Goodman was, was the fulfillment of a, Orthodox Jewish fantasy mm -hmm. that there would be a player who would be so good that the world would turn itself totally upside down to accommodate his needs. Mm. In the beginning, the idea was right. that he was going to go to University of Maryland, 
Mm-hmm. And not only not only would he play at the University of Maryland, and Chabad stepped up and said, we'll give him kosher food and we'll give him shiur and we'll give him lectures and things of that sort. But they're going to move the ACC right. tournament from Shabbos to Sunday, etc., etc., etc. Okay, uh, he was a good ball player. He was not a, he was not a Jewish Jordan. He's become a metaphor, and once you become a metaphor, then it's more than just what you end up doing. So he ends up in. By the way, on the road to playing college basketball. He leaves the yeshiva. Yes, he goes to Seventh-day Adventist school. He goes to a Seventh-day Adventist school. Exactly. So he's a a complicated story as far as that's concerned. As far as yeshiva basketball is concerned, yes, in recent years, we've done very, very well on a Division III level. And we have some outstanding players. Uh, One local kid, uh, uh, Ryan Terrell in California, we yep. have uh, Gabe Leifer, who comes from the five towns, and we've won an inordinate amount of games. Errors in Division Three. We're a great Division Three ball club. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, what do I think ultimately the great significance of Yeshiva winning and going into the small big dance, the Division Three uh, 64 tournament? Now, the first time they went into the big dance, they got knocked out in the first round. Mm-hmm. The second time they got into the tournament, they got knocked out the pandemic. And there right. was no tournament last year. I've written an article about this whole phenomenon. Yeah, I have it right here. And, it's beautiful. Okay. So what do I say? The most interesting thing for me is not only, and think about, you know, think about the Olympic Committee and think about all these organizations uh, that when Yeshiva played in these tournaments, they moved the games from Friday night to Saturday, excuse me, and Saturday to Friday morning. And uh-huh. there was no outcry. There was no outcry from the opposition. In fact, I make the point that it's not a Jewish story. Mm-hmm. It's it's a uh, it's a NCAA story. You, you know, the NCAA has more rules in the Shulchan Aruch than the Code yep. of Jewish Law. There's the Bingham Young rule. Bingham exactly. Young is a Mormon school. They won't play on Sunday. And the NCAA almost screwed up a few years ago when they yep. scheduled, they scheduled them to play Friday and Sunday. First round Friday, second round su- uh, Sunday. Well, God was good. They got knocked out in the first round. God was not By the way, I had anything. Joe Lunardi, the bracketologist from ESPN, I had him on the show, and he writes in his book, Bracketology, that he doesn't really support the BYU rule. He said it's not fair to the other schools. You either play by the rules or you don't. So it's interesting how that that okay. comes into effect as but well. But in our conference, Skyline Conference, the right. rule is that yeshiva yeshiva plays on days other than Shabbat and, and Chagim. I mm-hmm. think it, it's a tremendous statement about Jewish acceptance, the acceptance yeah. of Jews and Judaism in America. Now I make the point. Sadly, we're living through a period of anti-Semitism growing exactly. to this country. But it's not in the sport. It's not in the sport. It's not in the sports world as much. Uh, as in other walks of life, NCAA mm-hmm. accommodates us. Mm-hmm. By the way, by the way, uh, I don't know how much time we have here, but our guys wear kippot. Not all of our guys wear, wear kippot. The rule that NCAA is: you can't wear any ornaments, but you can wear you can't you can wear a kippah 
you didn't reveal to your audience one other piece about me that off and on for 30 some odd years, I helped coach Yeshiva's right. basketball team. Right. Okay. When I started in the 1970s, we had a game uh, in Madison, New Jersey against Drew University. It's a Methodist school, it began as a Methodist school, right? And our kids walk on the court, and they're, some of them are wearing yarmulkes and some of them aren't. The referee comes out and says, they got to take those things off. Mm-hmm. I say, fine. Johnny Halpert, who's the senior coach, says, fine. We're going back to Washington Heights. We'll be damned, literally damned, if I'm going to tell my kids, take off the yarmulkes. The drill coach, in exasperation, says, what are you talking about? They've been wearing those things for 30 years. <laughs> and we've been wearing these things for more than 30 years, but we've been playing there for 30. Let the game begin. Referee is adamant. We go in the back room. We get on the phone. We call the head of officials for the ECAC on the East Coast, and we say to him, here's the problem. He says, put the referee on. He says, you dirty so-and-so. Let them wear the darn things. They've been wearing them for 30 years. Game starts. We lose by 27 points. On the way back to Manhattan, one of our kids comes over to Johnny Halpern and says, Coach, we should have left the, left while we had a chance. <laughs> but here's the story that our religious traditions are being accommodated. Yep. And now we're winning. And it's very, very nice. And But that's the biggest story. Because eventually, Yeshiva is going to lose games. But the biggest story is that America is respecting of this Orthodox team. And it's very important. A few years ago, there was a high school. In Houston, Barron Academy. Barron exactly. Academy. Uh, Barron Academy had a good team. They were yep. supposed to play on Friday night. The opposition, a Christian school said, we'll play Friday morning. Right. The association, the Texas Association says, no, they got to play Friday night. Another great Jew, Jeff Van Gundy, who's not Jewish, yep. says, let them play the games. It says a lot about Jewish acceptance in America. So I'm telling your audience, don't forget about anti-Semitism and mm-hmm. fight anti-Semitism and be proud of your Jewishness, but also understand that with all these things, sports tells us that we're living in a blessed country. Yeah. Uh, I can go on and on. There's a case, there's a case in Des Moines, Iowa. Des Moines, Iowa, where Friday night lights are not Shabbos candles. They uh-huh. are, that's football. football night, right? Right. A few years ago, a young man, Jewish young man, who's a member of a reformed congregation, appeals to the Des Moines, Iowa school board to move the game away from Rosh Hashanah evening. Mm-hmm. And they do it. They do it. Not only that, the Des Moines Register, very important American newspaper, has a headline story about Rosh Hashanah. It says a lot. These are the oh. things that have interested me in writing this type of work. So it's October, Dodgers, Braves right now um, happening. Last night, not so great. Two nights, a little better. Take us through October baseball and Young Kipper with the difference between Hank Greenberg, Sandy Koufax, and the 1986 Mets with the involvement of the Jewish community in terms of accommodating needs. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great story. By the way, from a television point of view, I think if the Red Sox lose and the Dodgers lose, uh, television officials will be slitting their wrists when you have a World <laughs> Series. And I love Atlanta, and uh, I'm not thrilled with Houston's behavior a few years ago. Mm-hmm. That isn't exactly the prime time game they wanted. I think they wanted the Dodgers to play against the uh, we can uh, do it the Red Sox. So maybe you can do it, but we'll see. 
this afternoon when the game uh, takes place, at least in, uh, in L.A. Look, 1936, greatest Jewish baseball player, 1930s, the greatest Jewish baseball player is Hank Greenberg. Probably the most important thing about Hank Greenberg is that he played handball with my mother in the Bronx before he became a baseball player. And according to my mother, he was a bit of a klutz when it came to handball. But he was a great baseball player. Every year, and now the World Series, the postseason goes into November, right? Mr. November, right? Every year, Jewish holidays run up against the, the end of the baseball season. A lot of pressure on Hank Greenberg to play on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. He doesn't know what to do. He turns to a reformed rabbi named Franklin. He says, what should I do? He says, if you are, uh, he's pressured by his ownership, excuse me. Mickey Cochran, his manager says, you have a community obligation to play. Detroit community to play against the Yankees, okay? Towards the postseason. He ends up playing on Rosh Hashanah, but he doesn't play on Yom Kippur. By that time, the pennant is pretty much wrapped up. And it's a great statement about where Jews are in the mind of America in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Link that to what I said about Greenberg and New York AC. I can say much more. Detroit's a very anti-Semitic town. The Klan's up there. Henry Ford's up there. Uh, other types of things, uh, discrimination against Jews. Now we, sick, we fast forward to 1964. The Dodgers have left New York. Terrible thing to, for New York City. They go to L.A. And, and Koufax, who's not a particularly observant Jew, he uh, says, I won't play on Yom Kippur. And America accepts it, a more cultural, pluralistic America. And you probably know the great story. In fact, there was a museum exhibit about Jews and sports in Philadelphia. Yep. It's on the wall. Don Drysdale, his roommate, uh, pitches terribly instead of Koufax. And Walt Alston, his manager, and I guess I'm speaking to an L.A. audience primarily, so you all know this. Don Drysdale says to Alston when he's taken out of the game, I bet you wish I was a Jew also because I wouldn't be playing today. <laughs> it's a great statement of Jewish, Jewish life. Okay. Yeah. And by the way, those of you who like the economics of sports, you remember where um, Koufax and Drysdale held out for $125,000 uh, per year in the 1960s? Uh, Kyrie Irving loses. I was in the gym this morning. Somebody estimated he loses $40,000 every time. Excuse me, $400,000 every time he doesn't play. Okay. We now fast forward to 1986. There are no Jews on the Mets. This is, by the way, for Red Sox fans, the Bill Buckner World Series. But before the World Series, they have to qualify, and they play against the Houston Astros, the Mets. There are no Jews on the Mets. There are no Jews on the Astros, although some of the owners of the Mets are Jewish. And uh, Jews of New York complain that the games are being held on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Look how far we've come. Mm-hmm. Now, at the end of the day, the oh, uh, George Peter Vesey, who writes for the Times, writes an op-ed piece. And he says that uh, the game won't happen. God will intercede. There'll be great thunderstorms, rain. Right. And he advises fans 
to behave like the biblical Noah and start building an ark. Well, the game does take place, but it says a lot about where Jews are in the mind of America. And I'll tell you one other personal story. A few years ago, I think it was 2005 or six, there was a game that was supposed to be played on Erev Yom Kippur mm -hmm. and ES between the Red Sox and the Yankees. You see, my colleagues study Tosafist, they study Rashi, they study papyri. I look at, at baseball games. And the game was supposed to take place at 8 o'clock at night. Jews of New I get a call from the public relations office at Yeshiva. Right. They said, there's a big problem here. You have to write an op-ed piece condemning baseball and ESPN. So I'm a wordsmith. I write it in a couple of minutes. I send it down to the PR office. Three people see it, by the way. Okay. A few hours later, the ESPN folds. They move the game back to 2 p.m. And I walk around Yeshiva taking high fives from people claiming <laughs> that I changed this. But all these things are metaphorical about respect for Jews and Judaism in the, uh, in the United States. So 19, the 1938, 1964, 1986, and down to the, uh, down to the present day. All these things, so, are, I think, are significant. So last question. You spoke about the historian Barron, who said the idea of the adversity of freedom. We spoke about the immigrant experience, how your dad changed the name to uh, Austin as opposed to Gurak, and name changes, and Jude was saying John. It, it's complicated. It's not just you, you go and play and pray. The historian Barron said there's the adversity of freedom, basically meaning once we have freedom within this country, we have sometimes even more challenges than we thought with the restrictions. Yes. How do you so, see the adversity of freedom today and going forward when, and I think you said this in a lecture before, that you, you I don't know if it was you asked or somebody else asked, or maybe a rabbi, are your children going to be NBA players? No. You want them to be professional Jews? Yes. Then what are you choosing? How does the adversity of freedom, what does that mean? And what does that look like today going forward? Right. Well, the greatest Jewish historian of the 20th century was Salo W. Baron, not Baron, Baron. Oh, sorry, Baron, yes. That's okay, Baron, Columbia University. He was the teacher of my teachers. And he said the challenge of American jury is how do you survive as a robust, ongoing community in a country, notwithstanding the existence of anti-Semitism, which is basically accepting of us. Mm -hmm. And that's a great challenge. How are we doing? Now, I'll step away from being a sports historian and talk about an American Jewish historian. With acceptance comes all sorts of challenge, whether it's intermarriage or simply drifting away from, from being right. Jew Jewish, right? You, you start to quote Harold Kushner, who wrote this great book, right. When 